Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. We are continuing our Detroit Today miniseries, Reckoning 375, a deep look at the plans to reimagine the area around I-375 on the east side of downtown Detroit. The construction of that highway and the development of the neighborhoods that exist near it today destroyed two predominantly black neighborhoods, Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. Our series asks whether the project to reimagine I-375 properly centers what was lost in the effort to build that area. Today, we want to start by taking you on a little trip. Detroit is not the only American city that let highways destroy neighborhoods, and black neighborhoods in particular. In cities like Minneapolis and Los Angeles and Syracuse, Concrete made for fast travel devastated areas where people lived, worked, and had fun. That's what the 1950s and 60s looked like all around our country. And many of those cities are now rethinking what was done, trying to come to terms with a way to repair the damage. In New Orleans, a city with so many similarities to Detroit, they're a bit ahead of where we are here in Detroit with that reconsideration. I-10, the nation's southernmost cross-continental highway, stretches all the way from Jacksonville, Florida to Los Angeles, California. And when it cut through New Orleans in 1968, it went right through several predominantly black neighborhoods in the historic 7th Ward dividing and destroying them in ways that echo loudly in the miseries they experience today. But the rethink of that I-10 corridor is unfolding really differently than what we're doing here in Detroit with I-375. They're fronting community involvement in New Orleans. They're leading with the intention of making right, at least in part, what went wrong when the highway was constructed. And in that way, New Orleans is a lesson in what the process for highway removal looks like when it actually engages community residents directly impacted by the highway and takes their concerns seriously. It's an example of what the highway removal process looks like when it's done well. So we start today's show in New Orleans, in the 7th Ward, in a celebrated neighborhood called Treme, with a woman named Asali Devon Ecclesiastes, whose deep roots in that community inspired city government to draft her to lead the community outreach effort as New Orleans began to rethink I-10. Asali Ecclesiastes, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you so very much. It's definitely my pleasure to be here with yes, you all. There are many direct and indirect connections oh, yeah. between New Orleans and uh, and Detroit. Um, oh, yeah, we are cousins. That's, that's absolutely right, at minimum, right? Um, at minimum. Uh, so I, I want to start with you talking about what happened there in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, the neighborhood that mm-hmm. was destroyed 
by the expressway. What was that neighborhood and what were the consequences of the highway being built? So when the interstate was built in New Orleans on the beautiful Mardi Gras day, residents of the French Quarter arranged themselves into what is known as the first NIMBY organization, a not in my backyard. They protested the interstate going through their community and on the Mardi Gras day when no one was there to protest or be able to talk about it, the city council voted to put the highway, I-10 Expressway along Claiborne Avenue. At that time, Claiborne Avenue was the site of hundreds of thriving black businesses. You know, as a result of segregation, there were black business corridors that separate economies, right, from the mainstream of the city. And they were thriving. The eminent domain that was instituted in order for the highway to be put there removed 328 black-owned businesses. Those businesses were removed without compensation or relocation, even though the city received those kinds of funds for those businesses. They were redistributed to um, white neighborhoods to make sound barriers and make the interstate pretty in their neighborhoods, (laughs) right? Um, The stripping of intergenerational wealth occurred. So this site went from one of the highest performing commercial districts in the southeast of America to the lowest performing commercial district in the city of New Orleans. Right. And you mentioned the Tremaine neighborhood, but it's actually a line of 14 historically black neighborhoods right, mm. that were impacted by the building of the interstate. And in our outreach, we engaged residents from all of those communities. Yeah. Yeah. So um, talk about what those places, those neighborhoods are mm-hmm. like today with this highway running through the middle of it. You, you, you talked about mm-hmm. the things that were destroyed. What rose up in place of the things that were taken taken away? Well, unfortunately, what mostly rose was disparity, <laughs> right? Mm. Not a lot of new businesses um, are those kinds of investments. Not a lot of infrastructure or education investments. These communities are, even though these are the same communities that produce the cultural traditions that everyone knows about New Orleans, right? And provide the fuel and the engine for the tourist industry that is the basis of the economy in our city. You know, it's purely an extractive relationship, right? Uh, I want to talk a little about how we've come to the present uh, in in that area with this idea of at least thinking about removing the highway or or Mm -hmm. reorganizing the neighborhood uh, some way. is this something that, in your opinion, built over the decades of the highway mm. existing? Or is this something that, that people have come to recently as uh, an idea to try to, to try to make things better? Um, when I entered the mayor's office in 2014, I was presented with a study called the Livable Claiborne Community Study that was the first of its kind partnership between the USDOT, D, and HUD. What we learn in the course of that is that to remove the interstate is a double injustice, Mm. right? Because what we find is that the communities who bore the burdens and the impacts of the interstate being there are now quickly and aggressively removed. The displacement, gentrification, all of those forces, there's more eminent domain that happens. And 
we can say what we want, but in this country, we don't build nice things for black and poor people, right? So when nice things get built, black and poor people are signaled that it's time to look for somewhere else because the now the wealthy people are going to come and have priority in access to these amenities because that's who infrastructure is built for in our country. Wow. So that we took that in our community as a signal that now we're going to be removed from our communities. And in a city like New Orleans, where neighborhood um, traditions are very important in cultural identity and self-identity and all of those things, that was scary for people. And so what we decided is that rather than remove the interstate, we make it work for us. Um, you know, over the years, there are many cultural celebrations that happen under the interstate. A lot of our musicians love the interstate because of the way the music amplifies in that space. We work to get a joint use agreement for the space underneath the interstate between the state's DOTD, the Federal Highway Administration, and the city of New Orleans for us to be able to do what community plans. And what they planned was what we're calling a cultural innovation district. It's 19 blocks underneath the interstate, along with five blocks past it for creating neighborhood orchards and, you know, replanting the oak trees, pedestrian malls. And it includes taking down the ramps that really heavily impact neighborhoods, right? And so on that street, we have three um, spots that are on the top 10 list for pedestrian fatalities and because there are these on-ramps um, and off-ramps to the interstate. So we will remove the ramps but not the interstate itself in, in our plan. I'm talking with Asale Devon Ecclesiastes. She is the chief executive and equity officer with Ashe Cultural Arts Center in New Orleans. She read, she led the community outreach process as a program manager for the Claiborne Corridor in the mayor's office. We're talking about uh, the idea of how you repair neighborhoods that were destroyed by highway construction. Uh, this is part of our series here at WDET, Reckoning 375, which is taking a pretty close look at our own plans to reimagine the area that was destroyed when I-375 was built on the east side of downtown Detroit. Uh, Asali, I want to talk now about the process that you guys mm-hmm. have used in New Orleans. It, it does look really different than some other cities, including ours here in Detroit. You put the community engagement and inquiry mm-hmm. at the at the front of, of yeah. what was going on. Tell us why that was why that was done and, and how it went. I'm a community person who was working in government, right? I, I came into government very unexpectedly, you know, in all transparency to those who don't know me, your audience. I'm an educator, a event producer, artist. So, you know, I live the hippie kind of life. I'm cultural, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Never expected to be working inside of government. When I began to hold the community meetings, because I am a trusted member of my community and I have a relationship that predates my work in government, when I started having these conversations, people started telling me things and saying things that they probably wouldn't normally tell a government worker. So we began by talking to the people who were closest to the problem. So let me just tell you a little bit about the process and how the decisions were made. Mm -hmm. So in those closest to the problem, we kind of determined to be those who lost a business or property. 
as a result of the interstate. So we still had that information, right? We use the kind of information that the city and the state will have that the community, you know, won't have, right? So we were able to reach out to those people and invite them into conversation first about, you know, what they would like to see, well, what would restitution and justice mean to them inside of this context where really there's limited <laughs> justice and restitution. But as far as what we could do, what can we do? We went through an entire year of meetings, but the meetings weren't just like normal government meetings, or oh, here it is, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, where the people who <laughs> are being paid to be there, right, are not really invested, not making a sacrifice, and then the people who really need to be there making the decisions can't be in the room because they're at work. Hmm. So we would do our meetings on a Friday evening and a Saturday morning and afternoon. So Friday evening, we would serve a lovely dinner. We provide transportation. We provide child care, and we provide food. If you don't have those things, you're not really having a community meeting, and you're not really trying to make it possible for community to be there, especially if it's at a time when they can't be there. So that's first and foremost. If you're having community meetings that don't make it possible for community, it's not a community meeting. So we would have those meetings on Fridays. And the most important part that most people who work inside a bureaucracy are not willing to do is to listen to the pure, unprotocolled response of community. These projects cause a great deal of pain and harm. Mm -hmm. And in government, we don't want to hear about the pain and harm. And if we do hear about it, we want to hear about it in well-modulated tones. And we want to hear about it in this two-minute time frame because now your time is up. So they want you to contain your pain and your rage mm -hmm. and your solution right in this little capsule where it can't fit and so that they can swallow it easily. We allow people to be able to express all of the harm that they have been subjected to because that's the only way you can build trust, right? right? If you can't even listen to my honest, opinion and reaction, we can't have trust. And so as a, what I consider the baby of my community, a darling of my community, the apple of my ancestors and my elders, I, I had to stand there in the role of government and take people's fury, their disdain, their disbelief in anything I was saying, because now I'm in the seat of government, right? Yes. You have to be willing to accept all of that. And we would do that on Friday, and they would get it out. And at the beginning, it would just be me. But then I started telling the finance director and the director of public works and capital projects, oh, y'all coming <laughs> with me because I'm not doing this by myself. Y'all, <laughs> right? So you get your collaborators inside of the office to come and stand and be responsible for what government did to the community, right? We know it wasn't us. We know we weren't in the seats, but we stand in those seats now, right? And so authentically showing up. And um, receiving all of that on Saturday, now we have to get to work. We've gotten all of the other stuff out, and now we can concentrate. We've built relationship. We've built trust. We've built transparency. And now we're going to come up with fantastic, magnanimous, aspirational ideas together and figure out how to make them happen. And that's, and that's what we did. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about the Claiborne Avenue corridor in New Orleans and how it compares to our reconsideration of I-375 on the east side of downtown Detroit. This is part of our miniseries on Detroit Today titled Reckoning 375. We'll be right back 
with more Detroit Today. I want to talk to you about trust and the trust that people, citizens, need to have in government to reach some of the things that you were talking about earlier, the, the uh-huh. idea of imagination um, rather than being, being restricted by what's reasonable, the idea of, of uh-huh. reaching for justice rather than accepting what's, what's reasonable. Do you feel like the process you went through built that trust? with the people in that neighborhood and that they believe now that the things that are happening are, are about them and about their lives. Absolutely. Because you know why we responded to them. So we have this kind of fear of perpetual engagement, perpetual engagement makes us always responsive to community. And if you're responsive, you're responsible, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they said they wanted more meetings, we gave them more meetings. <laughs> when they said, oh, we need one in this neighborhood, we went to that neighborhood. When they said we need one around this particular subject matter, we had one around um, that subject matter. And of course, at the time I was in the mayor's office, so I was working with that collection of resources, which is really different from a community organization being able to do it. But particularly in Detroit, um, the DOT has a whole lot of money, so they should be able to easily support such a community engagement strategy that's really community-centered and that lets community lead the strategy and lets government respond. (laughs) Hmm. Um, And and that is where the trust comes from because, you know, and it is going to be on a local place-based level. There's nothing that we're going to do, you know, with this that's going to make people trust government widely, right? That's a lot of work that needs to be done by people on the much bigger than level than the work that we're doing. But it starts with the kind of local work and um, the responsiveness of local government and the truthfulness um, and transparency of local government um, in making these things happen. And I just encourage everybody who works in government to remember that you live in your community and, and that's where you should lead from in your decision making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my last question is about the outcomes here. Uh, as you pointed out, the the decision was to not remove the highway, mm-hmm. which which leaves the initial injury. Although you talked about there there being a feeling that removing it would create a second injury, but mm-hmm. but do you think that the process that you went through and the the input that you got from the community for what you are going to do? builds uh-huh. toward does that build toward even more solution making in other words uh, yeah, does this make it possible folks are geniuses and when you create the space for them to you know really dream and especially with one another right if you you have a, a create the space for dream and and not just a dream one that they know could possibly and not just possibly but probably we don't like to say no definition government but <laughs> you know has a high likelihood you know of being implemented and you have decision makers in the room you have architects in the room who can translate your idea into a design consideration and put it in the architectural jargon or the engineering jargon so for one thing the environmental impacts are addressed there's a whole green infrastructure plan that accompanies it that one reserves over two million gallons of rainwater. But I just heard our 
um, landscape designer say he thinks it could be as much as 8 million gallons of rainwater from neighborhoods every year through the design considerations for because remember this is 19 blocks and it's in an area that floods and it floods mostly because of the interstate right because of the concrete and it's built up above but anyway so it, it does that it has air filtration um you know to get rid of particulates through the way that the plants are implemented it, it, i mean the beautification is amazing there's community health spaces where there's you know neighborhood workout programs and community health worker hubs and youth businesses and cultural businesses and you know we had ideas for gondolas i mean it's just all kind of stuff there's one of the ramps, instead of taking it down, is just going to be decommissioned and um, put solar, community solar mm. on the ramp. Like, you know, it's just amazing the ideas that folks came up with. And if you have a group of people um, surrounding those ideas who know how to translate them into what engineers need and what architects need and what policymakers need, created in that language for implementation, and there's really no limit. And I could imagine what that community of Detroit would plan for those Six lanes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely not going to be what the DOT plans for. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, Asali Devon Ecclesiastes, it was really great to have you here and talk about what is going on in New Orleans and in the Claiborne Avenue neighborhood uh, around this highway. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for allowing me the chance to get breathless about my passion. (laughs) Love y'all, Detroit. Thank you. We were just talking with someone who has engaged community residents about the highway reconsideration process in New Orleans. And now we want to take a broader overview of what removing highways has and often does look like. How often are parts of highways removed in America? Is this a weird moment that we're in where so many highways are up for the possibility of rethink or removal? And what are the best ways to engage communities and incorporate the ideas of community members when highways are up for reconsideration? That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And to discuss all of this, we have Reagan Patterson here. She is an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's also the co-founder of Black and Environment, a nonprofit that aims to increase visibility of black environmentalists. She also studies highway removal. Professor Patterson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. So let's start with those questions I was just asking. The federal government has made an awful lot of money available for states that want to rethink highways or remove them altogether. And lots of those highways, because of our history in this country, tore through black and other communities of people of color. So let's talk about places like Syracuse and Minneapolis, Los Angeles, New Orleans. What is this moment where it seems that we are thinking and talking about this more frequently than we have in our past and where all kinds of things all of a sudden seem possible where for many decades they just didn't even seem imaginable? 
Yeah, so this is really a special moment that's a culmination of a lot of grassroots organizing. And so this is a movement that I think gives um, needs to give recognition and homage to all of the freeway fighting movements that came before it. Um, and due to that organizing, there's now this moment where there's an inclusion of funding in the Reconnecting um, Communities program that is uh, $1 billion funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law, as well as the Neighborhood um, Equity Grants program that is in the Inflation Reduction Act that adds an additional $3 billion. But it really comes again from this history of grassroots organizing that has happened that had led to previous freeway removal projects in cities such as um, Boston, such as Oakland, such as San Francisco. And so now we have it at this national stage through this federal funding. And so now there's a lot more attention now that there's money behind it mm -hmm. um, for this effort that has, was really born out of that grassroots organizing mo uh, movement. So I want to go back with you a minute to the time when these highways were first imagined and then constructed. And the fact that so many of them destroyed or divided neighborhoods that were predominantly or even all African-American or, or, or populated with other people of color. Let's talk about what that destruction meant in a global sense uh, in cities all over America. How do highways affect communities and the people who live in them when they're constructed? Yes, yeah, so highways have done a lot to impact communities. And so um, in their construction with the displacement of communities of color, and we actually continue to see that through highway expansion projects and the creation of new highways. Um, and so the displacement of communities, um, they have contributed to our automobile dominated transportation system. So in so many places, if you don't have a car, you have restricted mobility. Um, and then from an environmental perspective, they've increased air and noise pollution. And so we see these disproportionate exposures to air pollution for folks who live near highways. Um, and then they've heightened the risk of pedestrian injuries. And so we have these high speed um, roadways. And so we have a lot more pedestrian injuries and fatalities. And so a lot of um, adverse impacts of highways. Um, and then what we see is that folks who live near highways actually have less car ownership. Um, and so we're seeing this disproportionate use of highways um, by folks who don't actually live in the neighborhoods that are adversely impacted. Um, and so the communities along highways are definitely um, disproportionately impacted by highways. And of course, when you make one set of choices, you preclude others. And when we choose to go through one kind of neighborhood with a highway, we preclude the possibility that it will go somewhere else. And that choice has consequences as well. The, the simple way, I think, maybe to think of that is that there are winners and losers in these equations. When you destroy one neighborhood for the highway, in some cases, you create opportunity for neighborhoods that were spared. Can you talk about the things that have happened around these highways that maybe add to the injustice? I, I want to 
drill down just for a second before I have you address that on the question here in Detroit, I-375 and the neighborhood next to it, Lafayette Park, which were built over two predominantly black neighborhoods, that new neighborhood is is a, a wonderful place and it is a place of great opportunity and there's some really wonderful wealth building going on in that area. That also is a consequence of the decision to to build the highway and plow over the neighborhood that was there. Absolutely. And so that gets to why, who do highways serve? And so when they were first created, they were created to connect um, the economic downtowns to the growing and emerging suburbs at the consequence of black and brown communities that were destroyed, as you're mentioning. And so um, highways and that increased mobility for some um, was for, about economic mobility at, um, for one group at the expense and cost of another. So you're exactly right in that who do highways serve? They And by that increased mobility, they provide that economic access for some, but a consequence at the consequence and expense of the black and brown communities that were displaced and destroyed. Yeah. I'm talking with Reagan Patterson, Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UCLA. She's the co-founder of Black in Environment, a nonprofit that aims to increase the visibility of black environmentalists. She also studies highway removal. We're talking with her as part of our miniseries here on Detroit Today, Reckoning 375, where we're taking a closer look at the plans to get rid of the I-375 connector on the east side of downtown Detroit and restore a street uh, in that place. We're asking whether the damage that was done to the neighborhoods that were there before, Black Bottom, Paradise Valley, is properly centered in the conversation about what should happen when I-375 goes away. We would love to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call. Uh, let us know what you make of the I-375 project. Do you live near that highway? Do you feel like people in that area have been engaged properly in the state's highway removal project? Earlier in the show, we talked with someone from New Orleans who was a part of their highway removal process and conversation. They fronted community engagement there. It was where they started and it was how they shaped the entire scope and breadth of the project. We're not doing it that way here. Should we be? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, Professor Patterson, before we get to to listeners, I want to talk about the idea of removing these highways and replacing them either with streets or with new communities. What should that look like? And what are some other places around the country where you see people doing it in a way that does center the idea of repair or reconciliation in this process? Great question. And that honestly is the million dollar question right now is how do we actually get it right? Um, We have examples of previous freeway removal projects Um, A lot of them can be, if folks are interested, the Congress for the New Urbanism um, has a website that shows a lot of these previous projects. However, the issue that um, 
has arisen in each of those cases is adequate community engagement um, and making sure that it's a community driven process that really reflects the needs of the community that was adversely impacted in the first place. And so that is the question of how can we get this process right? Um, you have a lot of um, communities that, or jurisdictions that are trying to do these community engagement processes. We see things happening like in Rochester, New York. Um, you see processes happening um, recently with the uh, removal of um, the Alaskan Viaduct Freeway. But we're continuing to see kind of community not getting everything or even a majority of their needs and interests reflected in the final outcomes. And so we're starting to see with um, programs now around capacity building. Um, there was a great program called the Community Connectors Program that is run by Smart Growth America that's really trying to get community engaged um, and capacity builds to be able to um, engage in a different way um, to hope that their visions are reflected more positively in the outcome. Um, but that's really kind of the question right now is how do we do this process and get it right? Um, and so I would look to places like Rochester, New York, where you have folks and the organization Hinge Neighbors who are really making sure they elevate the voices of community in that process. But mm -hmm. again, it's taking community organizing to ensure and really push for this bottom up grassroots community driven um, uh, kind of outcome. But is there an example of a community that's gotten it right yet? Not yet, um, but we're going to see what happens with this influx of funding. But again, that's going to be the burden continues to fall on communities to ensure that their voices are adequately engaged in the mm -hmm, process. Mm -hmm. So so I, I want to talk just uh, for a second about all of the communities that were divided and destroyed by by uh, highway highway construction. It's not just inner city neighborhoods and certainly in in cities we saw highways focused on areas where there were predominantly african americans and other people of color largely because politically it was easier to take those communities than others but when we go outside cities, we have lots of highways, especially here in Detroit, where we just love cars, of course, and love driving them fast and getting to places quickly. Uh, can you talk about the distinction between the way freeways get built in suburban communities where they also have to take land and destroy neighborhoods or at least reconfigure them? And, and what we're talking about, which happened, of course, mostly in the 1950s and 60s when cities were carved up. Was there a more just process for doing this in the suburbs? Is there a more just set of outcomes that emerged from highway construction in the suburbs? And, and what are the distinctions? Yeah, so when we talk about urban highway construction, a lot of that is where you have the displacement of black and brown communities for um, the creation really of suburban communities. Um, and so it was through highway construction that helped facilitate the construction of urban, of suburban communities. Right. Um, and so uh, then you get these highway expansion projects and the continued growth of these highways. And so um, it's interesting to then see in these kind of suburban areas, as you mentioned, there are, if you expand, you are continuing to take land. Um, and so 
it's interesting to see, but it's the, the origin of the highway really was to connect these urban cores to these new emerging suburban areas. And that was the, um, during that process, there was this very intentional destruction of black and brown communities. But so it's kind of this racialized history within urban areas mm-hmm. that is differentiated with the suburban and the creation of the suburbs. Um, but now as highways expand and things like that, so you're seeing, as you mentioned, you're seeing displacement. We have examples of even rural neighborhoods where farmland is being taken because of highway expansion projects or folks in rural communities now are dealing with, um, um, for instance, flooding impacts because of a new highway that came through their neighborhood. And so now we're starting to see how this kind of new, everybody's impacted by these highway expansion projects and new construction projects. Um, And so dealing with these consequences of displacement, this continued displacement of um, folks in both urban and suburban areas. And so how do we really kind of address this this highway, um, this uh, highway issue, both in urban, sub- suburban, and I would even add in rural um, communities. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Reagan Patterson of UCLA about uh, highway removal uh, in cities all across America. We will also get going with you, the listeners. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. guest right now is Reagan Patterson, an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at UCLA. We want to hear from you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, let us know what you make of the I-375 project. Uh, let's start today with Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having this ongoing important conversation about this project. Mm-hmm. Stephen, I wanted to give some perspective, and I also wanted to ask the professor a question. Okay. Um, so I've personally been involved with the project for over 10 years now. The uh, community meetings on, how, um, on what we were going to do to deal with 375 and all of the cross-street bridges started well over 10 years ago. And... Um, what I've come to learn is that all of these major projects just stretch on for so long is unbelievable. Um, but the community was involved and had an opportunity to give feedback into the overall concept of what the design was going to be. I've continued involvement on multiple levels because I live in the neighborhood um, for the last 10 years, and there are ongoing meetings that involve the community now, um, and I'm a part of that. Um, And so I just wanted to say that when they kick off groups that have been considering it, they've done what I thought was um, important is they brought in Detroit's historian to share a perspective on the history of the neighborhood. And he's been a part of the conversation on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think um, that there was an attempt to give some perspective uh, to people that are on the local advisory council for the um, for the changes that we're seeing, I also want to say that you know, in some ways, it feels like we're trying to build the plane while we're flying it because there's really no playbook that we've been able to go to to talk about how do you do this, how do you pull out 
a freeway and and how do you build equity into what the future of the land use, for example, looks like? Um, and so um, I, I do think that the right things, in some ways, we're trying to do the right things as we move forward on this. And I also think that in some ways we're the blind leading the blind on this. Um, and so that's what I wanted to get some perspective. You know, the, the, there there's going to be property created. And mm-hmm. what do you do when you dispose of the property? Yeah. There's some laws, right? The government has right away to they own the property or whatever. You have to turn it over. And we've structured how you dispose of government property in some very formal processes. Yes. But it seems to me that part of equity and part of building the Detroit we want into the future is making sure that there's equitable disposal of that property, that it doesn't go to all of the typical builders sure, and developers, sure. right? That neighborhood used to have some single-family homes. It had duplexes. It, 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 it had apartments. So how do we guarantee that there's a mixed opportunity of people to go into that available yeah. space. So, so Terry, I, I mean, I think your, your two your two points or your two questions kind of connect around, I think, the criticism that a lot of people have of the process. Yes, MDOT has held a lot of community meetings and sought a lot of feedback from the community about what they're doing, but MDOT is a transportation Agency And so the limitations of what they were able to even sit and imagine about this are, are pretty profound. MDOT can't really uh, remake a neighborhood. It can remake a road. And so, I mean, I think it's not so much that uh, MDOT didn't do what it could do. I think it's that MDOT maybe is limited in its capacity to, to consider the very things that you talk about in your second point, which is once you create all this land, who does it go to? And I'll, I'll go further. Why not include the folks who lost so much when I-375 and Lafayette Park were created in the conversation about what, what happens to that land? Why not design the project around the idea of trying at least to make them whole. I think that's where the limitations of this of this project become really manifest is that that's not what we're doing and it's not necessarily MDOT's fault, but it is the fault of the process in the way that it has been limited in in its consideration. Uh, Professor Patterson, I'll give you a chance to respond to Terry as well. Yes, I completely agree with what you said about that. Um, for me, when I mentioned that there's no perfect example. There have, throughout these, there are community engagement. That's part of the requirements now, particularly around NEPA and things like that, making sure that there are community meetings. But are those visions reflected in the outcome? And so that is where getting it right, we haven't seen necessarily. Who is that land going to? Are we ensuring that processes of, it does not um, further facilitate processes of gentrification, are the people who were actually adversely impacted able to then benefit from the outcome of these projects? And that's where, as you mentioned, there is no playbook just yet um, around this. And each community really is trying to say, how do we get this right? How do we ensure that the people who were adversely impacted do benefit and the people there now also are not further displaced? And so that's where that tension lies. Uh, there might be a community meeting, 
But again, are those community visions adequately reflected in what becomes of the available land? And you hit the nail on the neck head of equitable disposal and it's written in the rule books. And so how do we change those laws to be able to give land to a nonprofit, hmm. to be able to give land to a community land trust and not just have it go to the highest bidder? Um, and so those are the kinds of questions that we're trying to answer now. And so, you, so again, you were right in that we're really just figuring this out as we go to do it equitably um, and get it right, hopefully. This yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, Terry, really appreciate you calling uh, to talk about this and especially your perspective as somebody who lives in the adjacent neighborhood where, where all this is happening. Let's go next to Joan in Southfield. Joan, what's on your mind? Yes, good morning. I have a, a question. I'm concerned about initially who owned the land initially for the the homeowners, the single families, the renters. Mm-hmm. Who owned the land? I mean, that that that's the, the, the in my mind the primary question. Who yeah. owned it in order for this to have have happened? It, yeah, Joan. I, you know that's that is I think the first question we should have been asking. Where are the people who were displaced? Where are the families that lost either homes or businesses? And can we design this process around the idea of trying to make them whole? That's not where we started, and it it, it is I think uh, a late add to the conversation. Uh, but it, you know, I also don't want to necessarily imply that that's a simple question to answer. Black Bottom and Paradise Valley were very complicated neighborhoods in terms of ownership because so many of the African Americans who lived there or had businesses there didn't actually own the property where those houses or those businesses stood. Uh, so it's harder to think about how they get compensated and and whether and why. But but again, starting there, I think, is is critical. And we didn't do that here. Uh, we, we have started in a different place and, and now kind of come around to it. Uh, Professor Patterson, I, I wonder if you can think of a place where they have started with that question as opposed to thinking about a highway or a road and, and then adding the community thing on, on the back. Yes, so there's an example in Calif- Southern California where the goal is to actually, um, it's a reparative plan where communities or families that were displaced are um, provided uh, first access to housing um, back in the community that they were displaced from. And so that's kind of a pilot in Southern California. But that is another big question of how do you actually, as you mentioned before, repair the harm of the families that were actually displaced? And so we're dealing with, uh, we say we're reconnecting communities, but as you mentioned, engagement with the folks who were actually displaced decades ago. And then how do you equitably, as you mentioned, compensate? There's all of the lost wealth, um, that multi-generational wealth. There's the lost community connectivity. I mean, people are scattered and people have established homes and communities in completely different places. And so to reopen that, it's also emotional trauma. So how do you deal with that and adequately address all of the various elements and nuance? Um, That also, I don't think anyone has an answer (laughs) to really address all of that. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, Professor Reagan Patterson of UCLA. It was really great to have you here for this conversation on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to continuing to follow this and hope that community is able to get more voice before the concrete. Yeah, before it's too late. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Kavethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.